0: Welcome to the Youthscape podcast, the podcast for Christians who work with young people. Welcome to another episode of the Youthscape podcast. We're so glad that you joined us. My name is Rachel Gardner and I'm joined as ever with my lovely friend Martin Saunders sat in an equally gorgeous chair. Martin, it's so good. How long have we been doing this podcast together?
1: Well, we are at episode 200 and something.
0: Fantastic. So at least probably like five or six, six years. maybe,
1: oh my gosh, it's more than that. It might be. So, yeah, a long time.
0: And in all this time, I feel that this season where we're talking about... We've not called it Elephant in the Room, but we're talking about those things that are quite difficult to talk about. That was the
1: original title, wasn't it? That was the original
0: title. I feel this has been one of my most dynamic. Yeah, I'm really enjoying... Maybe it's because we're getting older and long in the tooth, but I'm really enjoying chatting about opening the box on lots of stuff and saying, this is tricky in youth ministry and this is tough and we've got more to come, people. So it's been a long season, but there's more to come. What's
1: well, it's interesting, isn't it? When I, I used to, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, I used to edit Youth Work magazine and <laughs> I used to think when I first started doing that, surely there's not enough to talk about to put out a magazine every single month. But we did. We, we packed the thing full of, I'm not going to try and sell it to you, can't get it anymore. But you you used to pack it full of different articles. And there was always different angles yeah. and insights and ways into talking about youth ministry, youth culture, young people, the church. There's actually, it seems to be like an infinite number of things to talk about. So I always think, gosh, how have we managed to do 200 and whatever episodes of this? It's a very kind of broad and wide ranging field because ultimately youth ministry is about God and people so that's quite a lot that's quite a large subject area when it you think is, about it, it
0: so I wanted to ask you how's it going for you with your youth ministry because you shared a few weeks back yeah you sort of shared on the podcast didn't you as one of those like I haven't told my mum yet but I'm telling all of you guys um about... I mean funny story
1: I saw my mum at the weekend Did and you? I hadn't told her, you hadn't so, told her either. so you're stepping uh, that's down for being true.
0: From from sort of full or part time, yeah, very part time,
1: very part time.
0: Being thinking about being a volunteer, still not sure about that. Have you resolved that dilemma?
1: Well, here's here's the interesting thing. We uh, the job, as far as I know, the job is probably still. Even as we speak and record this and it goes out, um, it's still available. Mm-hmm. We went through a round of recruitment. We didn't have a huge number of applicants for it. We didn't find quite the right person. We advertised again. And let me emphasize, you know, this is a good package in a great place with a brilliant existing youth work. If I do say so myself, <laughs> I just realized I've said that. Um, and and people just haven't applied and I've been thinking about this a lot, and I'm just not sure why people aren't going for this job. Because if you're not going for a job that is quite well paid in a very Disney. lovely place to live with, um, with an existing large youth ministry to take over, what does that mean for, for contexts and, and roles that come up in less less plum jobs
0: or places where it'd be more difficult to move to you wouldn't it wouldn't be enough of an income to actually yeah do you i mean do you feel this i feel sitting next to you almost like you're acknowledging another one of those elephants in the room which we're not actually talking about on this episode today but but it is a question if that if those sorts of jobs are not being snapped up yeah what is that telling us about who's available who's sense in the call into youth ministry who's thinking of this as a kind of an employed role I mean, does it tell you anything we need to be very very if we don't extract massive things from one example
1: but i think there was a lot going on um i, I was in on the uh, recruitment process for my predecessor so we actually had a full-time youth worker at the church 10 What well, we recruited about 10 years ago and we had many applicants we shortlisted maybe six I remember meeting them. It was a really tough decision. We ended up with a really experienced, strong wow. youth worker. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, fast forward 10 years, you are literally talking about one serious applicant mm-hmm. um, who actually, you know, put in an application form. So that's, that's not like I'm not I'm not sort of value judging the other people who put applications in. They didn't exist. We only interviewed one person because we only had one application. Well, what does that what does that tell us? Well, I think we do know that there's a, an overall picture of decline. We do know that people aren't coming out of training colleges in anywhere near the number that they they were ten years ago, uh, and I think COVID has played a massive part in this, in making people think in how people think about um, where they work. So previously, in some golden age, you would um, you'd find a job. And then you would move to the place where that job was and you would go to your place of work five days a week. That's how jobs tended to work. Because everybody went virtual, everyone went on Zoom and and found that they could do 90% of their roles quite well from their living room. Now people approach work completely differently. So m- most people haven't yet returned to work full time. And a lot of people have actually, you know, there's, there's research that says that uh, about a third of people would quit their jobs if they were asked to return to them full time. And I think in, in, even in youth work where we are sort of, um, we, we know that we're going to have to move somewhere to a job, you know, that's sort of built in. Even, even with that, you know, I think people are thinking twice about moving area to a job. They think, I'll, I'll live where I want to live, yeah. and I'll work there. The job will come to me. And there's enough jobs around. I actually think for youth ministry as a, as a sector, that's devastating. If that's yes. what's going on, yeah. because apart from people home growing leaders, which will happen better in some better resource context than others. What, who's going to move to take an, a new job? Even if you do get funding for five youth workers at your church in Blackburn, who, wh- you know, who's going to move to take them?
0: Yes, and so, it's limited funding and all that kind of stuff. I guess, I mean, the other really tricky aspect of this is we've probably had 20 years now of a narrative in the UK church that churches can employ staff, but what's come out of that has not always been a really positive picture. You know, we we always sort of, well, we don't joke about it, but there's a narrative that youth workers stay in post for two years max, you know, if you're lucky, and, and, and what's not spoken in that space is because actually church leaders can be pretty poor managers or because actually it's a really really undefined role. You know, what is it? Do you want an evangelist or a disciple maker? Do you want an outreach worker or a social action worker? You just call them a youth worker and expect them to do everything. So I I guess we're in that really interesting moment, actually, where we need to reshape and rethink what it is that we're talking about and then calling people again into that. And if, if our hunch is that there will be those who are full-time either employed or because that's how they choose to do it and they'll carry an expertise around that we need that we need those people there will be a whole army who will be volunteers and will know enough and be skilled enough to run what they're doing on the local sphere so I I feel like you I feel quite conflicted about this. i feel gutted that churches that are wanting to invest in young people and have the funding don't get the people applying. Um, but I'm heartbroken that people that do the training come out of it often saying, oh, no, I don't want to work for church. That's just that's heartbreaking. So I don't know where we go from here. What's this space Well,
1: maybe. I don't know where I go from here because obviously I'm not just going to um, walk away. You know, I was hoping to kind of just step back and become a volunteer Obviously, I can't, I can't just leave it. You know, this has been, uh, apart, apart from anything else, very pragmatically, I've got three of my own kids in the youth group. So I've got extra investment in not walking away. But, I, you know, I, I won't do that. So maybe we will have to have a, a different sort of shared leadership model. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't quite believe, having been in the sector for, for 20 years, that with a good salary on offer, a good package, a good church, good people around you, a volunteer team, lots of young people around, lots of exciting opportunities, not a bite.
0: Back to my old my old uh, drum beat, whatever it is, a thing I, the, the drum I bang. How do people find out about roles? Honestly, yeah. the magazine was classified at the back. That's where you found out about yeah, stuff. I do think lots of people just don't know. Where the jobs are. So well, I
1: don't know if I've mentioned this, but I used to be editor of Youth for a Magazine, did you? and in the
0: back we used to have holidays in Spain. Eight,
1: nine. Yes, there was a holidays page, <laughs> but but eight, nine, twelve pages We'd of jobs.
0: All go straight to those pages. That's why
1: Everybody people. Sadly, that was what I discovered was that yeah. that was the only reason people. Yeah. Um, maybe that's why time. people Will start listening to the podcast is if we do job ads.
0: Well, it's not a bad thing because I think actually, how do we get the right stuff in front of the right people? And you guys listening are the right people. You're who we're talking about. So- do you what I like about
1: this conversation what? is. It, it feels a bit naughty. It does. I feel like we're having like a private conversation, just decided to have it on we the podcast. We go a bit
0: meta, don't we? Yeah. I have been awake since 4am, so that's probably part I, of it. I think
1: we're allowed to talk about this. I
0: think we can, but it, these are these are the real issues that we are currently facing, aren't they? And it will change moving really forward. Anyway, we weren't planning on chatting about that at all. Well, we don't plan. We know we don't plan. We just go with where the Holy Spirit leads.
1: <laughs> oh, um, I'm not sure where that good. <laughs>
0: but we have a fantastic guest today yes we
1: do oh who's gonna save the day
0: she will save the day absolutely so tell us a little bit about how we yeah
1: so this is claire williams who works for the oxford center for christian apologetics um and she's a brilliant apologist Mm -hmm. she also runs her own ministry called get real um which is sort of facing uh apologetics more towards the black church Um, but she uh, is a fantastic communicator and explainer of things she's been involved at national youth ministry weekend uh, and satellites over the last couple of years what i love about her is um, every time she says something even if it's like a like a short sentence or she says something very concisely I'm always blown away. There's something every time I hear her. And I don't, yeah, I can't say that for many people. Yes. Every time yeah. she says something, I go, wow. And there's definitely a moment in this interview where you will feel that too.
0: Well, I, I was the, I had the privilege of hosting her at the National Youth Ministry Weekend, a panel, it was her, chris curtis and amy or ewing wow some brains i was i was just like fumbling through my questions so um the bible any good (laughs) go she was absolutely fantastic as you say absolutely brilliant drenched in this stuff and what comes out of her is is gold so people get a notepad and pen this interview is absolutely brilliant
1: Youth workers often tell us they're starved, really meaty stuff where you get to think not just about what you're going to do next week in your youth group, but when you have a chance to explore the why. What are the big challenges in culture and how do we in the church respond? If we don't think about that stuff, we're in danger of just repeating the same old material, but with less impact as young people's world changes.
0: And that's why five years ago, Youthscape teamed up with St Melitus College to launch the Youthscape St Melitus Annual Lecture. It's a free evening event where you'll get the deepest and latest thinking about young people and youth work.
1: On the evening of May the 15th this year, we're holding the 2023 Lecture, and guess what? You're invited to come in person to St Malaitis College in London, or to listen online all for free.
0: Chloe Comby is one of the UK's most admired broadcasters after her award-winning podcast released during lockdown, You Don't Know Me, in which she interviews young people about the issues that matter most to them. Their startlingly honest words about everything from gender to education challenged our assumptions about teenagers and what they really believe.
1: In this year's lecture on May the 15th, Chloe will be sharing her latest findings alongside Chris Russell we will be exploring their implications for Christian youth ministry. It's your chance to get some really deep insights that take you beyond what game to run next week and help you to step back and see the bigger trends emerging.
0: So there are two ways you can attend and both need you to register in advance on the Youthscape website. If you come in person to St Melitus College, you'll get a glass of wine, a goodie bag and a free download of the lecture audio and video to be able to listen again afterwards. If you can't get to London, you can listen online, but you'll also need to register in advance at youthscape.co.uk forward slash lecture. That's youthscape.co.uk forward slash lecture.
1: Tickets are available now to take your chance to get some really meaty thinking about young people and youth work.
0: Unless you're a vegetarian.
1: In which case you'll get some meat-free corn thinking. Does that work?
0: I'm not really sure. Anyway, see you guys on the 15th.
1: So Claire, thank you so much for coming on the Youthscape podcast. Um, you've been involved in a few of the Youthscape events over the last couple of years, but for, for people who haven't met you yet, do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself and, uh, and what you do, and maybe also kind of how you, you got there, the journey you've taken?
2: Sure, thank you so much um, for having me, Martin. Uh, it's good to be back working alongside Youthscape. So yeah, I was born into a Christian family, the daughter of a Jamaican preacher, and I was in church a lot. Uh, made a commitment to faith quite early and then I would say in like my mid to late 20s started to have some questions but I was having those questions and doubts about my faith but I was in church anyway so I was kind of like going through the motions but had some real deep questions going on underneath and then um, I left my teaching career I was a teacher for 10 years in secondary schools Uh, it was a perfect storm lots going on so I left my teaching career and I trained in apologetics with OCCA Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics And from there um, just got passionate about sharing the gospel, um, seeing people's lives transformed, but doing so in a way that gets rid of the barriers, um, the intellectual barriers and the barriers prior to saying, oh, because the Bible says so, you know? So, um, and that's what I I do now. So now I work with Oka as um, a speaker and tutor. So going around doing lots of different uh, events, whether that's equipping the church or um, engaging the culture and also, during my time as an OCA student, I kind of saw a little bit of a gap in apologetics in, in that some of the questions that, say, my community, the Black British community, would ask about um, Christianity that weren't necessarily being answered by your sort of classical apologetics model. And so I created Get Real, which looks at um, <clears throat> questions and objections to, to Christianity around race, racism, that sort of thing.
1: Well, can you, so we'll probably get onto this more later on, but... Like, what might some of those objections or, or questions be, particularly?
2: Yeah, so questions like, is Christianity a white man's religion or a Western religion? Um, who did uh, black and indigenous people pray to before the, the transatlantic slave trade? Um, is the Bible a tool sort of oppression, so on and so forth?
1: And we're going to get onto a bit mm. of that later on. Um just tell me briefly what teaching was like so you taught for 10 years was that secondary school it was
2: secondary school I mean I salute all primary teachers I can't do it can't. <laughs> um so yeah I was a secondary school teacher in southeast London um I started out in a girls school then went to my last school was it was a mixed school but mostly had boys in it just I, I love that the kids they make me laugh they, they can be a handful sometimes Uh, I was an English teacher. My last post was actually assistant head teacher. So I was gunning for headship and all that kind of stuff. But then God radically changed my plans. So here I am.
1: (laughs) Okay. And so you weren't, you're not sick of teenagers. You're still happy to sort of engage with young people. Definitely
2: happy to engage with young people. Um, It's just a slightly different way. (laughs) Not being, you know, not being officious and, you know, in the classroom. Yeah.
1: So given um, you're an apologist, you know, um, obviously you said you grew up in a, Uh, kind of christian household preacher uh household but um what you know what were some of the arguments or the experiences you had that like convinced you you know i'm not just gonna i'm not just taking on my parents faith i'm actually gonna own this myself
2: Mm. so that actually came quite young um i would say around uh 16 i was like you know what this is true, this is real, I had this conviction, I had this, you know, I felt like I had an encounter with God, I'd seen prayers being answered, and was overwhelmed by the cross, I guess, and, and what Christ has done for me. Uh, then the questions that started to rise in my mid to late 20s were around, you know, what is wrong with the church? Like, why is why why is church so political? Questions around the Bible as well, because again, in my household, my we had a very high view of scripture. And then, you know, seeing people say things about, you know god of the old testament for instance or or just the arguments of you know it's made up it's a myth it's so old those sorts of things i started to get a bit shaky because i love the bible um uh, i grew up hearing it a lot grew up memorizing verses and then it was like oh maybe this isn't true so what are you going to do about it and if we're if if we're being intellectually honest we will follow the evidence where it leads so if the bible isn't true if christianity isn't true then we should walk away from it
1: and you you sort of you decided it was true mm. um and so and and became very passionate about the bible you're very passionate about the bible um young people particularly would think it was was kind of crazy that we would put so much trust in something that was so old that you know it's so, it's put together in such a complicated way you know what for you are the reasons what were what the arguments why the Bible can be trusted.
2: Yeah, so before I say some reasons, I think that objection it comes from a genuine place. Like we no one wants to be duped and fooled out here, right? But equally it's what um C. S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, which is the idea that only this time, our time, in which we live, you know, has anything useful to say has the best amount of knowledge we are like the zenith of, of, of um, human thoughts Well actually we learn so much from the past the reason we are where we are today is for from from the the, the innovations the insights from the past as well so let's not be you know uh Let's not reject the past just because it's the past. That's not an argument, you know. We need to actually investigate is what we know from the past credible and can it inform us today? So, a couple of reasons why I think the Bible can be trusted, or why we should at least take it seriously as a text, right? So the uh the the, the textual rigour of the Bible. So some people will say the Bible's been changed a bit like you know, whispers over time, as, as it's been transmitted over history, it's been changed to just try and oppress us all. That's not doesn't stand up in the world of textual criticism, which is um, an academic you know, area of scholarship where you've got Christians and non-Christians alike who study the, the text of the Bible and look at, you know so let's take the New Testament, let's take the Gospel of Mark, uh, the oldest, uh, but sorry, the earliest, should I say, the earliest gospel and look at how um, the events of Jesus' life are, are, are told here. And then looking at, so the events of Jesus' life happened then they're recorded, and then we have them. Then we have then we have those records. And as um, William Lane Craig says, sometimes we get so worried about 2,000 years ago, 2023, that gap is too big for, for us to trust what's been recorded. The gap we should be worried about is the gap between the events of Jesus' life and then the recording of them. And that gap, when you look at other ancient texts on history, is very, very small. So that is one way, when we look at... Um, the recording of events and when they happened one-way textual criticism shows that the bible is quite robust and and stands up to other ancient texts from, from history so that's text text and i would also mention history so does the bible get certain facts about history right and the bible is i would say unique um among other um, sacred books from other religions in that it has the audacity to make claims about history and if you're making claims about history then it can be tested so yeah um one of the ways and uh, this this is expanded on a lot more in a book by peter j williams called can we trust the gospels and he's um taken uh other bits of work from richard bockham and so on the the historical the, the, the details the accuracy of details so one is the names for instance that we see in the new testament we say matthew chapter i think it's 10 and verse 2 we get a list of the disciples names and each of the disciples names that were most popular at the time of writing, or at the time, sorry, um, in in first century Palestine, have a qualifier. So um, you have Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Judas was a popular name, so that's why you have that qualifier. Where you've got someone like Bartholomew, not very popular name. There's no qualifier. Yeah. So when you look at that, uh, Peter J. Williams makes the the point that someone or people who weren't knowledgeable of of the time and area wouldn't have been that accurate with the names. So Stuff like that attests to the, the, the historicity of the Bible. We can trust the Bible historically. We can trust the Bible, text you, as I've said. But then I also think um, you, you, you mentioned that, you know, young people might think, you know, the way the Bible has been put together, it's lots of different types of genres and that sort of thing. Yes, because, you know, what story is the Bible telling? It's the story of God's rescue of humanity, yeah? And to be what does it mean to be human? It means to fall in love we've got the book of you know song of songs it, it means to have uh, lament and have feelings we've got the books of psalms we've got the book of lamentations we've got people uh, responding it's, it's about being human we've got um you know apocalyptic literature we look at the book of revelation and what's to come like the bible in its different genres speaks to what it means to be human so we're not talking about a god here who has intervened in human history um who, who sorry who hasn't intervened in human history stayed far away about God who's come near and we see that in the way the Bible tells the story of God's love for us so I think the the multiple genres of the Bible and the multiple authors is a good thing it's not just coming from this this one view which is to be human is to be holistic is to be quite complex and I think that's captured in the Bible even just as a text.
1: Yeah yeah I love that how how did you because what's wonderful about that is your you're kind of suggesting really, to fall in love with scripture, you need to embrace all of scripture you know how did how did that happen for you? Was it just like having the Bible in the home from such a young age you know why did you why did you get to a place where like you just you just loved the Bible and you wanted to know more and you wanted to embrace all these different facets
2: yeah, so I do think that um it's interesting growing up when we used to hear like our dad explain or preach on passages that say Joshua, you know, where we can people can get quite um, you know, you know, are they are they genocide passages, get quite het up yeah. about that. And there's good reason for that, obviously, there's some bits of scripture read it's like it's not easy reading. Um, but I remember hearing that as a child and hearing that God takes up for the oppressed. Yeah. The God of the Bible cares about the underdog. And seeing that you know the Lord of Hosts triumphing over over enemies, um, so just hearing that, uh, and also the Psalms as well. We, we I, I grew up reciting Psalms, and you know, falling in love with the way that we can talk quite frankly about the things that are wrong about the world, and God welcomes that honesty, not just you know we have to be pious and pretend everything's okay. So I think those are my sort of younger experiences of the Bible. Um, but then as an adult, particularly around 2020, with the whole Black Lives Matter stuff and uh, the murder of George Floyd and getting into difficult conversations with people, as a very, very also COVID, obviously, as well, reading the Psalms and just seeing that God is a God of justice, you know, reading that the Old Testament prophets, Micah, Obadiah, um, uh, and just seeing that God cares about justice and, and God holds his own people yeah, to account the orphan the widow the poor what are you doing i'm going to drive you out of the land like this is a god that we i can get on board with and i i say this sometimes in in relation to uh, if anyone's watched the 3 hours of um uh, avatar avatar 1 and 2 but in the first avatar um one of the navy uh, is praying uh kind of connected to the to awa this tree that hears the prayers of the people and is praying look awa please you know fight on our behalf and then someone else from the navy tribe says look um awa doesn't do that awa just looks to restore the balance of humanity and i was watching i was thinking no like i want a god who is going to intervene is going to overturn injustice and so that's one of the beautiful things you see threaded throughout the whole of scripture and then we see that ultimately displayed in jesus christ taking upon himself our you know the, the just wrath of god so that's yeah i just think in different life phases of my life as I've grown and as I've questioned scripture as well, going back to it and wrestling through. And I still have questions now about certain things. There's some things I read in scripture that's mm. not easy, but um, it just speaks to what it means to be human, but a God who's done something about that.
1: I love that. I love that. You're getting me excited about the Bible, Claire. <laughs> um, so we're doing a season of um, tough questions, tough questions for youth ministry. And um, the question we're going to look at today, we we just touched on it in the intro. There is um, is the Bible a tool of oppression? And really, we're asking that because that will be a question that young people come with, and they'll have some some preconceptions about faith, but particularly the book that we use, because through history it has been misused by so many people. And today, you know, we we even look at you know. Vladimir Putin looking at uh, his invasion of Ukraine as a as a holy endeavor, as a a restoration of church, you know. So therefore, young people are holding this question um, and it's very present. You know, so do you think that's first of all, is it a fair accusation that the Bible is a tool of oppression?
2: So, I think it is fair to say that the Bible has been used as a tool of oppression. The Bible has been weaponized. but to say that the Bible in and of itself is a tool of oppression, I think is a bit of a misnomer and the reasons for that is when you actually start to look at what the Bible says about oppression, <laughs> you don't get you know some of the arguments that 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 Putin is making you don't get and one of the things for me that this question comes up a lot. And the angle I take it from is the whole use of the Bible and and Christianity uh, during the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. So we know, for instance, that um, uh, formerly enslaved Africans were not permitted, uh, they were kept illiterate, so they weren't able to read. And even when they could read, so you, you kind of see that in Mary Prince's slave narrative, she was a formerly enslaved woman and she started to learn to read. And um, she talks about how her mistress wouldn't even let her go to church um, because suddenly if if someone that you're enslaving suddenly decides to become a Christian, how can you, the whole kind, your whole um, idea of enslavement falls apart. They're your brother in Christ. You can't do that sort of thing. So anyway, let's get back to the point. The Bible was used to enslave. And there was actually something called the Slave Bible where a good portion of scripture was taken out of the bible so passages about um liberation passages about freedom so god delivering the um the israelites from slavery in egypt that was taken out like the literal script the pages of that were taken out and then it was only it jumped to the 10 commandments right and it, it, it did that on purpose passages about you know in, in the new testament where um maybe peter was talking about slavery were kept in yeah but passages about god rescuing people were removed so If you can, if if, when we look at that though, the enslavers couldn't use the entire corpus of scripture to enslave because the theme of freedom and liberation is so evident. They had to doctor it, they had to remove it. So there we can see the weaponizing of the Bible. And so from those sorts of things comes the the accusation that yeah, yeah, the Bible is a tool of oppression, but what do you have to do to scripture in order to weaponize it? That's my question because in and of itself, It's 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 a book of liberation. It's a book of God's um, intervention in human history of God saving us. So um, yeah, those are just a couple of thoughts about that.
1: I mean, gosh, I think if you're if you're talking to young people who would level this kind of um, accusation against scripture, I think just that bit of knowledge that the way slave trade is actually weaponized the Bible was by removing bits of it so it fit. I think that is a really compelling piece of information I didn't know. Um, so that's really helpful. But even, even kind of a, a aside from that, what is it about the Bible? Why do you think it is that the Bible gets misused in this way, that people would choose to use a holy book in this way, and you know, historically and, and today, using the examples we've both just brought?
2: Yeah, I think because... Um what you're doing when you're using the bible to oppress you're employing uh divine sort of sanction for what you're doing so it's not just the pages you know you, you can read the bible just as a piece of literature it's a beautiful piece of literature but if you're reading it as the inspired word of god then you are when you're when you're using it to oppress people you're saying that god is saying this as well and that's where that's where the problems come in um And again, so just going back, sorry, to that that example of slavery, Mm. when formerly enslaved people read the Bible for themselves, they said, and I'm quoting from um, Frederick Douglass, formerly enslaved man, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I see the widest possible difference. Wow. And he he goes on and he goes on. It's in the appendix of his his slave narrative. This is what happens when you read the full corpus of scripture. You Mm. see god for who he says he is for who he has revealed himself not and ha- not how people have decided to to weaponize and use it and, and and also okay let me just push this back to some of the young people we might be engaging with so we know that there's a huge critique of capitalism right now i'm not here to ask people to you know put their political mm. flags uh, up, up in the air but when when so there's a culture of critiquing capitalism for whatever good or bad reason, right? And so maybe we should have some more Marxist critique of the world. Maybe we should have more Marxist ways of looking at the world. Now, Marxism in and of itself, when you just look at it as a theory, can be, people might say, you know, it's quite uh, a helpful tool in terms of sharing out wealth, okay? Unlike the, 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 you know, the transgressions of capitalism. When we see capitalism enacted in human history, what have we seen? Sorry, Marxism. What have Mm, we seen? mm. So let's take Stalinist Russia, supposedly built on Marxist principles, deaths upon deaths upon deaths. Mm, mm. Now, I'm not here to say that Marxism in and of itself is totally wrong, but you can see how it was weaponized by a system. You see that? So in the same way, any idea can be weaponized. And this is why it's really important to get back to the source and read scripture for ourselves, not to proof text, not to read some meme on social media and say, aha, there we go. That's why I'm not believing scripture. Read what scripture says for itself.
1: I'm, I'm really interested um, in the work that you're doing with Get Real um, and, and why you decided, that you, you said you saw there was a real gap there. Um, I, I, you know, I wonder whether the Bible itself, and particularly if you're, if you're someone who comes from a community, from a, um, a heritage that has historically been oppressed, Um, by other people holding bibles Mm. i wonder whether the bible itself becomes and you know a bit of an obstacle whether whether the whole thing is an obstacle that needs dismantling and deconstructing tell us a bit about what you've been doing and and why you feel so passionate about it
2: yeah i think that sometimes the rejection of the bible based upon what we've just described here the use of the bible to oppress uh, black people in the past and even today in terms of some missionary work that still continues to go on different kinds of missionary work what it actually does first and foremost is center okay oppressors <laughs> it makes it look as though the only time black people encountered scripture was at the hands of enslavers now we know that there was a significant time but it's not the only time when you look at church history you look at some of the early church fathers they were from north africa augustine tertullian and so on when you look at the ethiopian church produced some of the the strongest christian you know orthodox scholars we know shinuta Okay, writing uh, uh, great pieces of orthodox theology. There's a there's a scholar called um, what's his name, Vince Bantu, Dr. Vince Bantu, and he's he's learning and reading sort of ancient languages and just seeing that when we look at these African texts, these African sort of commentaries and theological pieces on the Bible on, on, on Christianity, they're very orthodox in their faith. They had their own Hamanot, their own theology, and so. Whilst I take the grievance, I really do, and there were just some horrors. You know, anyone who reads a slave narrative, you know, you've got to have a strong stomach because they don't play with what was done to them in the name of the Bible. But actually, when I look at this, those same people who had every reason to reject Christianity, they themselves read Scripture and and, and critiqued and condemned the institution of slavery and the way the Bible was used, but they could see that the Word of God is good. For me, I have to, I have to, I have to give them credit that, that that at least warrants investigation. And the people who should have and had every reason to reject Christianity on the basis of what we're talking about didn't. Why is that? What is it about Jesus? What is it about the story of God, you know, entering our world that is so compelling? So, um, I I kind of pushed back against, you know, it was weaponized, and it's true, it was, and I I, I will shout it to the, the cows come home. However. Are we just centering the oppressors and actually looking at people who've taken Jesus and his claim seriously um, over, over time? Yeah. What do they say about it?
1: And so just finally, can you tell us a bit about Get Real? And um, people might be interested, like watch some of your stuff. It's it's very accessible, isn't it? So it's, there's a lot of video. Uh, it's quite easy to get into. Do you just want to tell us about what you do.
2: Yeah, so um, I try (laughs) to look at objections that come from particularly the black British community. There's lots of sort of apologetics that happens with my African-American brothers doing some great work. But I think the UK is a slightly different context. So looking at some questions, you know, is the Bible a tool of oppression? Is Christianity good news for women? Is Christianity good news for black women, for black men? Um, And actually dignifying those objections to say these are real, these are felt, okay, uh, and what was done was unjust but then what is the truth what is the beauty of jesus christ and the christian faith so that's what i try to do uh videos to address that have um, ig lives on my on instagram at get Real 321 have ig live discussions on suffering justice you know is there more than one way to god um there's right now a, bit, a particular movement of uh young people black people from Christianity into sort of other indigenous beliefs or um, black consciousness religions, like Nation of Islam or Hebrew Israelites. And, you know, responding to those objections and to why people move, make the move and ask, you know, trying to show them, no, come back, come back home. So those are the reasons I do it. I think um, there is a gap. And I think um, it's partly because to say that I don't want to be a Christian because, Christianity is racist or it's been used as a tool of racist oppression sometimes it's not dignified by other people and I think that's I think that's I think that's um a failing of the church and I think it's a gap that needs to be addressed so that's what I do what I think what I do
1: brilliant and you're the I've noticed this over many years now Claire you're very humble and so you you struggle to big yourself up even when I give you multiple opportunities to do it <laughs> so let me say that uh, lots of people think very highly of you and what you're doing. Um, so we really recommend people check out Get Real um, on... Uh, what's the best, like, first... Is it a website? Is that the first place people should go to?
2: So uh, the website realquestions.co.uk and then the Instagram is getreal321. So, um, yeah, slightly longer videos on the website and then kind of just vox pops on on, um, on Instagram.
1: Check it out, everybody. She (laughs) won't say it, we will. Um, Thank you so much for giving us your time today, Claire.
2: No worries. Thank you so much, Martin.
0: As promised, it was a great interview. What stood out for you when you were chatting with her?
1: Well, one thing and you will have noticed this in my persistence with her is her immense humility. I love I love that Claire is so humble, but also it's quite frustrating <laughs> when you're just saying, give me the web address. Um, but she just doesn't want to promote herself. No. So I just, I actually love that about her and I don't want yes. it to change. But also you should go and find The stuff she was talking about, because it's brilliant. Um, The thing that she said that struck me between the eyes was talking about the specific edition of the Bible that was created by slave owners in order to keep people enslaved. Mm. Because in its entirety, the Bible does not support slavery. You had to produce a reduced, redacted version of the Bible in order for it to fit that narrative. And I thought that was just like, for me... I was like that's a brilliant apologetic mm-hmm. and really helps to to answer the key question that we were we were addressing about whether the bible itself is oppressive and and she was saying only the is only oppressive if you take bits out isn't that wonderful so um yeah i i, I mean i thought it was great listen to it again
0: oh it absolutely fantastic and even as you as i was listening to you guys talking about that the sort of sideways step for me was you know white evangelicalism in the States, sort of Christian nationalism, God supports us having guns. Like the way that you have to kind of remove stuff from scripture or over highlight other stuff to get to a place where you say America is Israel. Like this is the promised land. And and, and we've done it all throughout history, haven't we? To support our own worldview, our own perception. And and I thought that was really powerful and quite helpful hermeneutic tool, yep, yep. you know, to help us sort of understand how in every generation the the the, the injustices that have been, you know, mm. that have been sort of put in the name of the Bible. I mean, you have to do something like that with it. I thought that was really powerful. And I suppose the question is how, I mean, like, how do we as youth workers sort of help get behind the scenes with young people who are reading scripture through their own social lens? Our own uh, director of research, Dr. Lucy Moore, was just chatting with me upstairs actually about how a little bit of research, which will be coming out very soon, so listen for this, is um, how young people are responding her like the idea let's see what what they feel yucky what's a bit icky and the word power god Mm. being powerful and we were talking about do we rehabilitate that word or do we say actually if it is so socially driven by people in power are oppressive they abuse they let people down they're disappointing we don't want to cast God as powerful like that. That's not how God is powerful. So how do we help young people sort of understand the lens that they're reading scripture through, but but see it for what it is? Like, how, how do you do that yeah. on a Friday night when you're doing a game with chocolate and something? It's tough, isn't it?
1: And without wanting to leave you wanting more, uh, that beautifully dovetails into uh, an interview that is coming soon in a few weeks' time, uh, with Dr. Alonzo Paul, Ooh. who uh, is um, uh, a brilliant colleague of uh, of Claire's at the Ocker. Um, or we talk about the power dynamics at play, particularly in the Old Testament. But I, I guess as much as we can, and this is not easy at all, I, I realise when I say this, this is not an easy thing to do, but we have to help young people grasp the entirety of the scriptural narrative. It's it's If you pick and choose, if you over-highlight, as you say, one bit, one characteristic of God, one way that God behaved in one story as perceived by one writer at one time, yeah. then yes, it's all going to feel a bit warped and out of shape. We have to, as much as we possibly can, help young people to hold Old and New Testament and the whole of the story as well Yes. Um. In in context and tension, which is not... I mean that's not easy, is
0: it? I had a little ex- experience this recently. Actually, So my little boy is five and loves dinosaurs. Probably like most five year olds on the planet, absolutely adores dinosaurs. And I, I grew up in a kind of a wing of evangelicalism that was very nervous about dinosaurs because where are they in scripture yeah. and what happens with that? And the earth is only like five minutes old. All that kind of stuff that I grew up yeah. with, that I had to deconstruct. Um, and there's this brilliant book, a little plug. There's this brilliant book that's come out, written by Christians who are paleontologists, like they okay. love dinosaurs they they know about dinosaurs and so this book for children about dinosaurs is all about helping children understand the wonderful kindness and power of god expressed through dinosaurs it's absolutely brilliant and it sort of it dovetails fantastic archaeology and science and paleontology with this deep, rich understanding of the story of God. So it doesn't try to shoehorn when did dinosaurs fit in the Bible, but it sort of says, if dinosaurs are a creation of the creator, what do they say about? And they talk about God's kindness, the way dinosaurs cared for things. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. And my, I, I just watched my little Thomas, his eyes light up as these two worlds, like wow. collided. Yeah. This is the God that makes the dinosaurs. It was just so beautiful. So, so when we create those spaces, where young people, it can be dismantled, mm. and and kind of lenses come off eyes. I think it's it's a beautiful gift that we can give to each other and to ourselves, isn't it? I'm you what, in this
1: episode, we've done uh, guns. We've done uh, the shortfalls of American Christianity. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's always
0: nice to blame someone we've, else. We've done, we've done
1: dinosaurs. Uh, yeah. Basically, we are reinforcing our position as the slightly dodgy liberals <laughs> at Youthscape. It's
0: oh, the crowd is questioning. We're very broad are very broad, <laughs> but it's interesting to ask these questions, isn't it? And and these difficult conversations—that's what this whole season is about. How how do you create spaces to have to host some of these difficult conversations with young people?
1: So I hope it's appropriate for us to just segue slightly into a plug.
0: Ooh, um, a youthscape plugger yeah, doesn't sound like us. I hope that's all
1: right. <laughs> um, but I just want to tell you uh, about a new resource that we've been developing for, would you believe, two years. This has been actually over two years in the making, uh, and we might talk about why that was. Mm. Uh, but I just want to give you a sneak peek. So you can't get it yet. Uh, it's sort of coming. It right you're doing an, you're doing an audio <laughs> unboxing. I'm not sure if that works.
0: Um, but
1: um, This is good. Yeah, so this is coming soon. But we just thought we'd talk about it first on the podcast. So...
0: It's called Anti-Racism Conversations. And I've opened the box. It's a lovely little box. And inside, there are some activities and envelopes. And I've got the facilitator's guide. Yes. Uh, It's a resource designed to help young people from every background talk through one of the biggest justice issues of all time. So if it's one of the biggest justice issues of, of all time, why did it take two years? Surely it needs to be done quicker than that. Oh, yeah. So if we, it's a biggie. We knew
1: um, after the killing of George Floyd mm. in 2020, we, we knew that um, we wanted to get moving on a, a resource to help youth groups and schools think about their part in dismantling Historic racism, um, or what we might call anti-racism, rather than just racism um, and non-racism, uh, and we got to work on it straight away. And the truth is, it's a very difficult thing to get right mm. because there's a these are this is real people's lived experience. This is real people's lives. Um, it is an incredibly hot and contentious topic, um, and so we took our time over it and we involved loads of people. In it, we had a sort of editorial panel that was consulting on it as well. So like, I'm just trying to think of like the Christmas cake, like a Christmas cake. You can't. If you want a good Christmas cake, you've got to do. You've got to work months, hard. Yeah. months of work into it.
0: And I think it's fair to say that the whole way along this journey, we as Youthscape, although there was a little team of people from within and without yeah. Youthscape that developed this resource, we as Youthscape have been on quite a journey ourselves of being changed by this and challenged. And thinking differently about, as you say, not simply saying we're not, we don't agree with racism, to actually be anti-racist in our practice yeah. and values and and how we go about. It. So I think, as you say, this is this has come out of a, a deep space. It has changed us as an organisation and continues to do so. So, so can people get their hands on? No. It? Is that, oh, no. why are we for lucky? No, it? they can't. They can't.
1: But I but Sorry. I wanted to tell you it was coming. And so, oh, I
0: see. I see. What what it, what it
1: is is it's. Um, three sets of activities for youth groups to use. The first set of activities focuses on helping you identify where you, you or those in your, mm. in your community may be holding or expressing racist attitudes or behaviours. So that's step one. That's, if you think of it as traffic lights, right, that's the red. So that's stop. Yeah. And then there's a, a second set of activities, which is is our Amber look and listen set of activities, which is all about um, learning, learning, and trying to understand actually what's at play, what's going on, how racism happens, still takes takes hold in our communities even today. Even those of us that like to think, you know, I'm not racist, I don't see color, all of those mm. things help us to understand what's really going on. That's, I mean, I have to say, if it's if it's appropriate, that one's really fun. Mm. There's lots of, of of engaging and listening with lots lots of voices. Um, there's different mini games that you can play, including a takeaways World Cup uh i won't say any more than that but that's my favorite thing in the box and then um and then the final set of activities is a kind of green go and that's all around okay so what does it look like what active steps can i take in my life what could we do in our school what can we do in our youth ministry uh to become anti-racist so it's a three-phase journey it's youth guided so the idea is that young people choose which activities they want to take and it's all in a loving lovingly presented pizza box
0: and it's fair to say as well that, that one of our sort of values as Youthscape is that uh, young people themselves are involved the in development and yeah. piloting of this. So yeah. this will have been used and seen and developed by different groups of young people because that's nice. always our awareness, isn't it? We have an actual group of young people in front of us who might be feeling a whole range of things around this topic, vulnerabilities. It might be that we're working in a particularly monocultural area or or, or a more diverse area. And that's all been thought about as we've been developing this resource. Well, that's
1: one of the reasons why it's taken so long. It was. It's, it's had various names, one or two of which were misguided and horrendous, and I'm not going to share with you. Um, we just hadn't thought properly. Um, and, um, and we tried and tested it with lots of groups. And actually, we did a pilot with a group um, from the YMCA in Scotland, actually, last year. Um, so this is a whole year into development and a year b- before we actually published it who basically ripped what we'd prepared to Brilliant. shreds. I love it when young people do So we do that. almost had to start again. So this thing's been through various different iterations. Brilliant. Um, in terms of like our innovation process, this is the landmark resource in terms of the flagship resource yeah. in terms of having, uh, you know, really interrogated the ideas, developed it properly, tested and piloted it over and over again, enhanced it, and finally... There is that, what looks like a pepperoni pizza box. Brilliant. In front of you.
0: Well, thank you very much. So much in this episode. So, so full. So, friends, I think we're going to let you go. Get a lovely coffee, whatever today is holding. Go well, go gently, and we'll see you soon.
3: My name's Sam, and my unsung hero is a wonderful woman called Nadia, who was uh, the worship leader at my church growing up and spent many many hours with me Um, she would come around to my house actually every Thursday and we'd spend about an hour talking um, uh, in response particularly to seeing me one Sunday look very depressed and uh, yeah she poured in a huge amounts of time and energy to me and um, I think probably is a good reason I'm married and somewhat sane today um, because she. Listened, she prayed, she challenged me in helpful ways, um, and was willing to give up a lot of her time. And I think even if I didn't know it then or really would be able to articulate it then, uh, feeling that valuable to someone or that cared for was was very, very significant. So, um, yeah, that's Nadia.
0: It's started, it's begun. Begun. It's begun. You yeah, called the it gun. all this. Yeah. And I'm joined by Eva. Um <laughs> <laughs> I am Eva. <laughs> Have you got something to jump in?